John chapter 11, beginning in verse 1, says, Now a certain man was ill, Lazarus of Bethany, the village of Mary and her sister Martha. It was Mary who anointed the Lord with ointment and wiped his feet with her hair, whose brother Lazarus was ill. So the sister sent to him, saying, Lord, he whom you love is ill. But when Jesus heard it, he said, This illness does not lead to death. It is for the glory of God, so that the Son of God may be glorified through it. Now Jesus loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus. So when he heard that Lazarus was ill, he stayed two days longer in the place where he was. Then after this, he said to the disciples, Let us go to Judea again. The disciples said to him, Rabbi, the Jews were just now seeking to stone you, and are you going there again? Jesus answered, Are there not twelve hours in the day? If anyone walks in the day, he does not stumble because he sees the light of this world. But if anyone walks in the night, he stumbles because the light is not in him. I think what he's referring to there is Israel was broken into twelve hours and twelve hours for their days. You have the work hours and the sleep hours, basically, or the night hours. Jesus often uses that referring to day or light being the time of His earthly ministry. And the night is coming or the darkness is coming when His earthly ministry would come to an end. Then He says, But if anyone walks in the night and stumbles because the light is not in him, after saying these things, He said to them, Our friend Lazarus has fallen asleep, but I go to awaken him. The disciples said to him, Lord, if he has fallen asleep, he will recover. Now Jesus has spoken of his death, but they thought that he meant taking a rest and sleep. Then Jesus told them plainly, Lazarus has died. And for your sake, I'm glad that I was not there so that you may believe. But let us go to him. So Thomas, called the twin, said to his fellow disciples, Let us also go that we may die with him. Now when Jesus came, he found that Lazarus had already been in the tomb four days. Bethany was near Jerusalem, about two miles off, and many of the Jews had come to Martha and Mary to console them concerning their brother. So when Martha heard that Jesus was coming, she went and met him, but Mary remained seated in the house. Martha said to Jesus, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. But even now I know that whatever you ask from God, God will give you. Jesus said to her, your brother will rise again. Martha said to him, I know that he will rise again in the resurrection on the last day. Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. Do you believe this? She said to him, yes, Lord, I believe that you are the Christ, the Son of God, who is coming into the world. When she had said this, she went and called her sister Mary, saying in private, The teacher is here and is calling for you. And when she heard it, she rose quickly and went to him. Now Jesus had not yet come into the village, but was still in the place where Martha had met him. When the Jews who were with her in the house, consoling her, saw Mary rise quickly and go out, they followed her, supposing that she was going to the tomb to weep there. Now when Mary came to where Jesus was and saw him, she fell at his feet, saying to him, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. When Jesus saw her weeping, and the Jews who had come with her also weeping, he was deeply moved in his spirit and greatly troubled. And he said, Where have you laid him? And they said to him, Lord, come and see. Jesus wept. So the Jews said, See how he loved him. But some of them said, Could not he who opened the eyes of the blind man also have kept this man from dying? Then Jesus, deeply moved again, came to the tomb. And it was a cave, and a stone lay against it. And Jesus said, Take away the stone. Martha, the sister of the dead man, said to him, Lord, by this time there will be an odor, for he has been dead for four days. Jesus said to her, Did I not tell you that if you believed, you would see the glory of God? So they took away the stone, and Jesus lifted up his eyes and said, Father, I thank you that you have heard me. 
I knew that you always hear me, but I said this on account of the people standing around that they may believe that you sent me. When he had said these things, he cried out with a loud voice, Lazarus, come out. The man who had died came out, his hands and feet bound with linen strips and his face wrapped with cloth. Jesus said to them, unbind him and let him go. You know, in the movie The Christmas Carol, when Scrooge is first approached and told that he's going to be visited from three different spirits through the night and that these spirits were coming for his own good, his answer was, frankly, I'd rather not. Even though it would bring about his good and restoration, he did not want to go through it. Everybody that has come to Christ can kind of have a little bit of an understanding of that, right? You don't come to faith in Christ without first being faced with a recognition of who you are without Him. You don't really see and understand the grace of God that is being offered to you in salvation until you recognize the sinfulness and the penalty of the sin that is resting upon you that needs to be removed. And one of the things that I've noticed as we've gone through, particularly the study of the Gospel of John, that there are a lot of times in people's lives that is a great time for an opportunity of an experience of God's glory. But there's a cost to that experience. We're seeing it right here. Jesus, when He's telling His disciples, is almost seems excited, happy for them. They're going to be able to witness the glory of God to this extent. But it's going to take the suffering and the sorrow of the sisters of Lazarus and the death of Lazarus himself to accomplish it. We saw a similarity with the man that was born blind. That he got to see the glory of God, literally see for the first time in his life. But it took a lifetime of blindness leading up to that to experience it. And I'm convinced that a lot of times the things that God allows and brings into our life that are struggles and hardships are also an opportunity to experience the glory of God in our own lives. And part of it is going to be experienced by us uh, depending on how we can get our perception on the right track to be able to see it clearly for what it is. One commentator that I was reading this weekend compared it to a time when he came flying into Chicago O'Hare Airport and as he was uh, descending down into the airport, he saw that not far from the airport was this huge traffic jam And he said that people from way back in the traffic jam were standing on their bumpers and everything of their cars trying to see what was going on and how long it would take to get them back on the road. And He said, I could see from the airplane what they could not see from the bumpers of their cars because they could see all the rescue workers and the lights flashing and everything at work. And he knew that it would not take him long to get that cleared up and people back on their way and that he would be at home safe and secure in a pretty short amount of time. But he said, the only reason I could have that confidence is because I could see from the air what they couldn't see from the ground. And he he went on to make the point that this passage is one of those kinds of things. This passage is trying to shape our perspective so that we see things from the air and not from the ground. So we can trust God in the situations that we find ourselves. You know, one thing that I notice as we go through this passage is that on one hand, I'm careful to not, I don't want to diminish it. Because on the one hand, we're looking at a very unique situation, a very unique sign, as John calls them, a miracle. Even within the Gospel of John, this is the climax of his miracles other than the resurrection of Christ himself. This is the most powerful miracle recorded of the signs that John records within the Gospel. This is really going to push the conversation of who Jesus is. And we've recognized already that he likes to push the conversation of who he is. We came to the conclusion earlier that he pretty intentionally healed people on the Sabbath in order to push who he was. In fact, the very purpose of the signs themselves was to declare, to push who he is. An intense conversation comes out of this miracle. This would be the thing that would end up directly leading to the cross. And so on the one hand, this is an amazing miracle. He describes it as being able to experience or see, participate in the glory of God. And so I don't want to detract from the amazingness of that one. And it's peculiar. Even the miracles themselves are peculiar. If they were everyday events, we wouldn't call them miracles. 
They were here specifically in the time of Christ to point to who He was. They had a very definite purpose. And so I don't want to diminishing that by trying to make it every day. But you know what? At the same time, we can see how so easily it does apply to some of the more everyday things in our lives. In other words, it doesn't just apply to Lazarus' suffering and his sister's sorrow. It applies to times when we go through suffering and times of sorrow. And we recognize that even though this is a unique incident that Christ steps into, that it also provides hope for our situations as well. And I think we're just in doing that. Because when you consider that Paul in 2 Corinthians chapter 3, he looks at Moses' experience on the mountain with God and says Moses went up before God to get the law. And when he came back down off the mountain, he radiated the glory of God. Because of Moses' experience with the glory of God, he radiated that and everybody could see it. And then he turns and applies that to us saying, we too, as we behold the glory of God in Christ... We are changed from one level of glory to another. So in other words, even though Moses' situation, his experience of the glory of God was unique to Moses, in fact, just even to him it was unique, and definitely unique from the rest of us, it also was used to apply to the rest of us. The Bible continually points to the fact that the glory of God is our highest aim. It's our highest goal. 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 31 says, that Whether therefore you eat or drink or whatsoever you do, do all to the glory of God of God. Jesus prayed to the Father that the glory that He shared with God before the world began, which God doesn't share with anybody in that sense, but Jesus is of God, that that glory would be shared among us. So the specific incidences of the glory of Christ where we get to see it revealed in somebody else's life, experience within the pages of the New Testament, we get to recognize that, you know what, we also have an experience that is supposed to in some way draw from their experiences. And that's what we're considering here this morning is experiencing the glory of God. Now, one of the things I like about this is it's so easy to see yourself in this passage. We weren't there, but we've all been there. You know what I mean? These sisters, Lazarus himself even, they've just spent days doing what? Fretting, worrying, praying, giving it to God, taking it back, giving it back again, taking it back again. Asking God where He is, how come you're not answering this, what's falling through. We've been there. And you know what? I find in myself that I do the same thing they did. Because typically when we have this opportunity that is before us, and that's what these things often are, every hard and struggling situation that we're in is an opportunity for us to grow in some way. So much so that James in his, in his epistle in the first chapter tells those people who were being persecuted and scattered abroad, tells them, rejoice when you come across trials of all different kinds. Why? Because you know at a time like that that God is in work in you building an endurance, building a patience, building you. And so our times where it is an opportunity for us to experience the glory of God, we need to recognize it as that. Well, often what do we do? Often I find myself that typically we question, why am I going through this? Why now? Why this? Well, that's exactly what we see within the passage. In verse 21, Martha said to Jesus, Lord, if you'd been here, my brother would not have died. I don't know whether to call it a question or an accusation, actually. But he's saying, look, what is she saying when you get right down to it? If you put it in your own words, where, where were you? What held you up? Why aren't, why aren't you here? And then in verse 32, when the other sister comes out to him, she fell at his feet saying to him, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. She's got the same concern. Even the people standing around ended up asking the same questions. But some of them said, could not he who opened the eyes of the blind man also have kept this man from dying? When you stop and think back to the things that you've done here, he's 
healed lame, blind, of people he probably had never said a word to. Lazarus and the home of Lazarus' sisters seemed to be, well, one commentator called it a very familiar place to Christ and the apostles. It was a home that he frequented. It was a home where they were friends. But he doesn't make it to there, and they're asking why. And you know what? We have a tendency to do the same thing, don't we? I like what Kent Hughes said. When delays and hardships come to us, we cannot expect to know all the details, all the answers, and all the reasons. If we spent all our time asking why, we'd be using a lot of our time very unprofitably. I remember one book I read way back. I think it was called The Upside of Down. And he said, you know, when we ask the question why, we're asking the wrong question. Why? Because you can't know it. Some people take comfort in the fact that, well, when we get to heaven, we'll know it. Maybe. But you know what? The question that we can answer is who? Who can help me with this? And that points us right back to God. It points us to other believers that can help us through these things, that have been through similar things. But what do we do? We tend to question. Not only do we tend to question, often we find ourselves doubting. And we find that within the passages at all. The first place we find it is right right among the apostles. When they were given the good news that Lazarus's the final result of the condition was going to be the glory of God. And so Jesus is like, I'm glad that, that we weren't there because you're going to see the glory of God. And, and so he's excited about this. And Thomas's reaction was, let us also go that we may die with him. So what's Thomas's conclusion? Well, let's go with him so that we can die with him. Now, to be honest with you, on one hand, I say, hey, kudos to you. At least you have a backbone and you're going to go face it. But on the other hand, he just told you you're going to go see the glory of God. Do you believe him or not? Well, not only do we see it in the disciples where we find some doubting, but we also see it with the sisters because Jesus has that nice conversation with Martha about him being the resurrection and the life and about those who believe in him won't die. Though you're dead, you live. You live forever. She wants to know exactly what he's talking about. I know he's going to be resurrected at the last day as opposed to this day. But when Jesus has him lead him to the tomb and he goes to the tomb and he says, take away the stone, Martha, the sister of the dead man, said to him, Lord, by this time there will be an odor for he has been dead for four days. She's doubting it too. He just told her, I'm the resurrection and the life. Something amazing is going to happen here, but she's doubting it. Now this doubt's probably ingrained within them a little bit. It's kind of interesting. One of the things I learned this week is that uh, according to some of the rabbinical writings that we have, there's an understanding among Jewish people that when you die, your soul kind of hovered around the body for three days, hoping to re-enter the body. But by the fourth day, they considered that the decay had set in and there was no hope of the soul entering the body anymore after that point. Which, if that's what's in mind here, if that's what they have in mind, it's really very interesting that Christ waited until he was hit the four-day mark because Lazarus is very substantiated as dead. He's not kind of dead. And this is going to take a definite divine miracle to ignite life in this dead corpse. So what do we find? We find that typically when we come across an incident in our life where we have an opportunity to experience the glory of God maybe to a greater level, often we question it. Why would you let this happen to me? We doubt. You know, that's the same thing they were doing. And so we fit right in here. Rather, let's do this. Rather, let's recognize some things. So what we're trying to do here this morning... We're trying to take our look from the ground and try to lift it up to the sky. What do we see when we do that? The first thing that we need to recognize is that God is supreme. It's about Him, and He's in charge. And it's about His glory. And we, thankfully, get an opportunity to participate in it. In chapter 11, verse 4, it says, But when Jesus heard it, He said, This illness does not lead to death. It is for the glory of God, so that the Son of God may be glorified through it. In verse 40, Jesus said to her, Did I not tell you that if you believed, you would see the glory of God? 
You know, that's one of the things that we need to keep in mind is this is one area that I do think that our culture has surpassed many of the previous cultures in that we think that the whole world revolves around us. And I think it's increasing more and more that way as time goes on. We lie to our kids and tell them you can be anything that you want to be. It's absolutely not true. Someone that's destined to be 5'10 is not going to be 6'4. Probably not going to have a major part in the NBA. You know, I remember when I was in high school, one of our teachers, he said to us, he said, you know what, you guys, opportunities are passing you by. He said, not one of you in this room is going to be in the Olympics. Because he said, you know what, people that are going to the Olympics for things, at your age, they're already there. Or they've been training for something since they were three, four, and five years old that gets them as good as they're going to be to get there. And all of a sudden I started to realize, you know what, there's a reality that I live in. And there's going to be some things in this world that I can be good at if I work at it. And there's a lot of things in this world that I'm not going to be that good at even if I work at it. And there's a reality to who I am. And, and what it did was it made me kind of acknowledge but you know what? This world is not about me. I'm not the center of the universe. I can't be whatever I want to be, and the world's not going to rotate around me. And you know what? That, that's a good thing to know. You see, our world's kind of going crazy in a hurry, thinking that they can create their own personhood and decide what they are. And the fact of the matter is, a lot of things in life are just given to you. They're not things that you fashion yourself into. They're just given to you. And you and you got what you're born with. I remember when my son Zach was was uh, struggling because he loved sports. And he worked at it. He was okay size. And he did a lot of work. He lifted weights, tried to eat right and stuff like that. I remember one summer coming into a senior year, he'd already talked to the coach and everything. There was a spot for him on the starting lineup. And the coach just told him, he says, I just want you to put on as much weight as you can over the summer and strengthen up. And Zach went to the gym faithfully and he ate like crazy. We had the food bills to prove it. And he was so excited. And he got to that fall of his senior year and his buddy Wes Davis, who was... Six foot four and 280 pounds decided to play football he'd never played in his life. And there went Zach to the bench. And he was so bummed about that. But you know what? We had conversations with him. And at one point, I remember Lisa, in her wisdom, she said, Zach, you get what you get. Look at your dad. Look at me. We're not huge athletic stars in anything. We don't have amazing abilities in athletics. And you came from us. And so you can work at it and you can improve and you can do your best and you can be the best you can be. But sometimes maybe that's just not going to... And you know that was good for him. Because you know what? Shortly after that, he went off to college. And I remember the day we walked up to the college campus to enroll him in college, there were some girls out front. And anybody was of any size that was a man, they were asking him, why aren't you on the football team? The coach had had them do this. And Zach looked at me with that look, and he's like, Dad, one more chance to play football. And I said, Zach, you're, I think your football days are over. This school is expensive, and you need to work. <laughs> you know. And so he passed it by. But you know what? He decided to try something new. Well, actually, he'd already been trying it at Little Fork, and he'd gotten involved in some of the plays and the drama. And he ended up, even as a freshman, later freshman, in lead parts and lead roles, and he did end up being lead roles all the way through college. got scholarships to, to help pay for some of his college in that in a whole different area, and he excelled in that area. Kind of the crux that I'm trying to get back to is, you know what, we are not the center of these things. We are to take what God has given us and bring honor and glory to God and let things fall where they may. This is not all about Lazarus. It's not all about Lazarus' sisters. This is all about the glory of God. When they send message to Jesus, look, Lazarus is sick. And I'm sure since he cared about them very much, the anticipation was that he got a quick mode of travel and he got on his way to come and to deliver Lazarus. But instead, what did Jesus do? He waits two more days. 
So that cumulatively, by the time the message had gotten to him, Lazarus probably died shortly after the messenger left, that day of travel, and then he waits two days, and then a day of travel for them to get back there. And so four days later. Why? Because the immediate needs of Lazarus in his physical life and the immediate needs of the emotional things that his sisters were going through in this great sorrow were not the center of the universe. What is the center of the universe? Only the glory of God. Always the center of the universe. Why? It's in the question with the word God. That's where the glory belongs. And the fact of the matter is, the best thing for me and the best thing for you is to recognize that God is where the glory belongs and to align our lives accordingly. If you try to make your life revolve around you, you're going to be miserable. You don't get a happy life by making everything revolve around you. You know what you get? Stress and anxiety. And and I think we're seeing it more and more. The more self-centered America becomes, the more therapeutic America becomes. In John chapter 1, and verse 14, all the way back at the beginning, John had already tried to orient us this way. He says, The Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen His glory. Glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. You know, in chapter 2, when he changes the water into wine at the wedding, it says in verse 11, This, the first of his signs, Jesus did at Cana in Galilee and manifested his glory, and his disciples believed in him. I think it's safe to say that all of his signs from that one on also manifested his glory. And you know what? When God works in your life, he's manifesting his glory in you. It is an opportunity to experience that glory. As we mentioned earlier, the blind man in John chapter 9 and verse 3, Jesus answered when people asked him, Who sinned, this man or the blind man, that this guy was born blind? And Jesus said, Neither of them sinned. It was not this man who sinned or his parents, but that the works of God might be displayed in him. We really need to get a hold of this idea. The Bible says in Colossians in chapter 1 about Christ that he is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by Him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things were created through Him and for Him. And He is before all things, and in Him all things hold together. And He is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything He might be preeminent. In everything. That means everything in your life, everything in my life, all the... Uh, joyous occasions in my life, all the sad occasions in my life, all the nervous occasions in my life. Every Christ is the center of everything so that in everything, He's preeminent. Uh, it really got me stopping and asking this about myself. When I came across passages like that blind man, Jesus literally said, this guy has spent his whole life blind for this moment that I display my glory in his life. And I started thinking... If that was me, would I be encouraged by that? This is awesome. I got to experience the glory of God at a level that most people don't get to do. Or would I have been bitter? You made me be blind for my whole life up to this point to heal me? You see, it begs the question, is God worth it? We come here to worship, and that's what worship is, is saying, God, you are worthy. But experiencing a lifetime of blindness be a small price to pay to be able to be part of the magnification of the glory of God. Would going through death and having your family gathered around you and in tears and crying and Jesus purposely staying away for two more days, letting you die so that this can happen, is that worth it? Well, if your life is all about you, you're going to say no. If your life is centered on the glory of God, you're going to resound yes. That's a perspective we need to have. God is supreme. 
He's the center of my life. He's the center of the world. He's to be glorified. But then you know what? It brushes right up against something else, and that is that we're loved. In verse 3, the sisters sent to him, saying, Lord, he whom you love is ill. Good friends. In fact, that's just the word, phileo, brotherly love. Verse 33, when Jesus saw her weeping and the Jews who had come with her also weeping, he was deeply moved in his spirit and greatly troubled. So Jesus was not emotionally unaffected. Verse 38, then Jesus deeply moved again, came to the tomb. Verses 35 and 36, it says, verse 35, shortest verse in the Bible, Jesus wept. And what did they say? See how he loved him. Again, same word, phileo, brotherly love. You know, it always amazed me that Christ would cry at this point. He knows that in minutes He's going to raise Lazarus from the dead. He knows that in minutes a funeral is going to turn into a party. And mourning is going to turn into celebration. He knows that that is just right around the corner. But He sees their brokenness. He sees their sorrow. And He can't help but come in alongside. Isn't that encouraging to know? You know, when you're, when you're crying over something, Jesus is crying with you. In 5 and 6, we see something amazing. It says, Now Jesus loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus. Different word. Agape. Godly love. But notice, the word so is so interesting. Now Jesus loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus. So means whatever's coming next is because of what He just said. Because He loved them. When He heard that Lazarus was ill, He stayed two days longer in the place where He was. Our natural tendency is to say, look, if you love them, why didn't you go take care of this? If you love this, why didn't you intervene? If you love this, why weren't you there? But actually... It says he loved them, so he waited. He let them go through it. He let them experience it. Why? Because there's a greater glory on the other side. And the fact of the matter is, it is better for us to go through some suffering and to grow and learn the lessons that God has for us in those things and experience his glory on the other side of it. It says that Jesus loved them, so he allowed them to go through this and then brought His glory to bear on the other end of it. Again, Kent Hughes says, but John 11 elevates our perspective. It explains to Christ's praying devoted children that no matter how it may appear, these inexplicable delays are delays of love. He's working out a greater accomplishment, a greater happiness, a greater glory. And His delay is an act of love. Well then, lastly... What this is pointed at is our need to believe. We need to recognize that God is supreme. We need to recognize that in that supremacy of God, He will allow us and bring us into trying circumstances so that we can grow and experience His glory at a greater level in our relationship with Him. But that comes through the vehicle of belief. It is in believing and being strengthened in our faith that we get to experience the glory of God in a greater way. In, in verses 14 and 15, it says, Then Jesus told them plainly, Lazarus has died, and for your sake I am glad that I was not there. Of course he is. He did it on purpose. He was purposely not there. So that you may believe. The outcome of this is going to be your belief. I'm set this up so that you, you will learn. You will believe. You will trust. In verses 25 through 27, Jesus said to her, talking about Martha, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. Do you believe this? And she said to him, Yes, Lord, I believe that you are the Christ, the Son of God, who is coming into the world. He said it just as good as Peter did when he was called on the carpet for who is the Christ. In verse 40, 
Jesus said to her, Did not I tell you that if you believed, you would see the glory of God? Verse 42, I knew that you always hear me when he's praying to the Father, but I said this on account of the people standing around that they may believe that you sent me. And verse 45, peeking into next week's passage just a little bit, many of the Jews therefore who had come with Mary and had seen what he did, believed in him. And you know that, like every other part of the book of John, pours right back into the purpose of his writing it. He says in chapter 20, verses 30 and 31, Now Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book, but these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in His name. Over 80 times in the Gospel of John, believe. As we look at this unique incident in the life of Lazarus, we need to allow that to help us see clearly that Christ is the Son of God, the one that has come into the world to save us from our sins. And that through Him and Him alone, we have eternal life. But we also need to recognize that there's times in our life where God brings us an opportunity that we might not even recognize as an opportunity. An opportunity to experience His glory on a new level. It's our tendency when that happens to go to the questions and go to the doubting. That's a dead-end road. Rather, let's recognize His supremacy in the midst of knowing that you're loved. And the love that He has for you is factored into this equation of whatever it is that you're going through. So ultimately, what do I need to know? So what do I need to do? Believe.